the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, well, with all the rain, the drought figures improve, but we're not out of the woods in many areas yet because of uh, variability issues. Also, thousands of tractors are blocking the roads, highways and traffic in Germany as farmers there are protesting against proposed agricultural subsidy cuts. Farmers are currently in the street protesting because our government, they have the highest tax income since the history in Germany, but on the other hand, also the highest cash outcome. That's why they have a lack of cash. And now they are searching for some opportunities to fix that hole, to remove some subsidies, for example, for fuel for their farmers. And also the, the tax for the tractors was in the past for free. And now they want to change it. We'll hear more uh, from the German farmers shortly on the program and uh, also reaction to the forestry, the federal court decision there yesterday as well. You can always send us a text too on the country hour. 0467 is the number to text me here at the country hour. You might want to talk about this story, the drought conditions. Well, technically, they may have improved, but more than half of the state, and this is the kicker, more than half of the state remains in drought. The combined drought indicator shows 63% of New South Wales was one of the three drought categories at the end of December. The DPI's Anthony Clark says with a lot of variability around some farms, some people missing out on rain, and also the variable pasture growth in some regions, we're definitely not out of the woods just yet. That's right, Michael. Um, we've had some quite nice rainfall uh, late November and across December and over Christmas. Um, we have seen an easing of, of the intense and widespread drought conditions, which look like they were forming in October. We've seen a, an easing of that. It's still quite complex out there. It's definitely not uniform. Um, there are parts of New South Wales which missed out, parts of regions which missed out. We've been seeing a lot of farm-to-farm variability out in western New South Wales, so still a complex environment out there. Yeah, and we've got to remember too that uh, the drought indicator got up to, you know, at the top of the 90s at one point. Oh, it it did, absolutely. Um, So we've still got a ways to go in terms of um, being back in that wonderful couple of years where we enjoyed very high rainfall. But there are still some issues in terms... I know you've been looking at the satellite pictures of pasture. Tell us about that. What are the issues there? Yeah, we're still seeing um, quite concerning um, stress on pastures. Uh, We're seeing high temperatures. We're getting quite high evaporation rates in areas like the Northern Hunter, uh, Northwest Hunter, uh, up into the Tablelands, and, and patches down, particularly in the central west and far west of New South Wales, we're still seeing pastures under quite a bit of stress. On the flip side, in the Tablelands, we're seeing some phenomenal pasture growth rates, even though we've got historical low rainfall. Um, we've just had great timing of rainfall, so highly effective rainfall. Further south around Bega, it's the opposite. We've seen very high rainfall, arguably drought recovering rain, but not a great response from the pastures at this stage. You know, the events have been too intensive. This points to, you know, we describe it as a complex environment where some of the underlying factors which 
farmers across the state are managing. Right, so rain, as we know, rain just doesn't equal pastoral grass growth straight away. You know, there's a time lag there, um, and, um, you know, some rain is better than others at different times. Oh, absolutely. Generally speaking, summer rainfall, we watch very closely. It's not always effective. And in, indeed, you know, we do get a pulse of pasture growth, but the quality of that feed's questionable. Um, when we get high-intensity events, we question how much water gets into subs- subsoil moisture. Right across the state, probably particularly up in the north and northwest, we're quite concerned. We, we haven't seen a big up uplift in subsoil moisture storage so we're still vulnerable we're still relying on rainfall events to to drive production so we're in that that sort of zone of risk if you like for farm managers and hence you know 63 percent of the state's still in drought yeah it's a fairly conservative estimate we are seeing the drought indicator starting to point north um, signs of early recovery um we, we keep a conservative watch. So we, we label a lot of the state at the moment as drought affected. Some regions are, are looking quite good. Like I said, they've, they've had good pasture growth, but just that underlying soil moisture is a concern. So we just take a conservative view and call that drought affected. But there's also been a lot of talk about El Nino and some people saying, you know, that El Nino could return and we might see the um, the tap turn off in terms of rainfall. You know, that would be a concern with these figures. I think it's really important people uh, don't put too much weight on a single climate driver at the moment. It's a very, very complex climatic environment as well. We've yeah, and this is, isn't unprecedented. We've, we've had an El Nino, but the atmosphere hasn't strongly followed it. So we've been getting rainfall events in New South Wales during a, a strong oceanic El Nino, if you like. It's really important people actually use the, the climate model output. The climate models integrate all processes. It's really important you, you tap online for the Bureau or your, your weather feed and getting some of the international climate models. Those models at the moment are pointing towards, you know, a reasonably wet January, early February. Um, beyond that, a little bit of drying off, but things change quite rapidly. So, like I said, really important to take that sort of more balanced view in terms of the forward uh, prognosis. And, of course, El Nino, as the Bureau has been saying, doesn't mean no rain. And, of course, when you have a tropical cyclone in the mix, that can throw a huge amount of rain that you can't really forecast. Yeah, absolutely. It's those types of uh, low uh, pressure systems that are drifting down because of warm ocean temperatures, even during this El Nino event. You know, that's really driven by more local sea surface temperatures. Um, got of course the southern annular mode highly volatile system but it has been occasionally pushing belts of rain across new south wales generally speaking that correlation between el nino and dryness in new south wales the reliability of it starts to decline as you go south it's not unprecedented to have wet years during you know quite strong oceanic el nino events like i said probably more important to rely on the numerical climate models these days than a a pure El Nino forecast. That's the DPI's climatologist, agricultural climatologist, Anthony Clark. It's 13 minutes past 12. He's uh, actually 
saying that uh, many areas are still managing the impacts of a long-term drought event and that's making decision-making even uh, more difficult for those people with that environment as well. It's 13 minutes past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, thousands of tractors are blocking roads, highways and traffic in Germany as farmers are protesting proposed agricultural subsidy cuts. The cuts are part of the German government's 2024 budget plans and include proposed changes changes to diesel taxes and also vehicle tax exemptions for farmers. Daniel Jung is a young vegetable farmer from near Stuttgart in southern Germany and he says that farmers are angry and change is needed. Farmers are currently in the street protesting because our government, they have the highest tax income since the history in Germany, but on the other hand, also the highest cash outcome in our government. That's why they have a lack of cash, and now they are searching for some opportunities to fix that hole in their household plan. And now they had the, the idea to remove some subsidies, for example, for fuel for their farmers and also the the tax for the tractors was in the past for free and now they want to change it to uh, every truck every car so we, we we should also start go pay taxes for that now with those proposed subsidies for farmers what would they mean for you as a farmer if they were to come in place for me as a farmer it would be a, between 50,000 and 80,000 euros per year less income and that's a huge amount for me and my family and not only for me also for the all the other farmers they are really angry at the moment because uh, yesterday they decided to quit the subsidy for the fuel not from today to tomorrow in some steps but that's why the farmers are getting angry now and but I think yesterday was a big protest action uh, in, uh, in the whole Germany and there were about 100,000 tractors on the streets. They blocked the highway, for example, or the big cities. How did the public and the government react to those protests? The public reacted with good feelings and they, they were happy <laughs> that the farmers are on the street, really, and they supported us. But the government in Berlin, they said, nothing will change. It's our plans. We quit these subsidies. And it doesn't matter what you're doing on the streets. But uh, on the other hand, we had some politicals yesterday from, uh, for example, Rheinland-Pfalz. That's the area in Germany. There, the, the president there of this area, uh, she told also, hey, stop the quitting. Let, it, let the old system run and search for another opportunities to, fi- to found some money. Now, the government did make some concessions and instead of, cutting subsidies immediately, for example, on fuel, they now slowly phase it out and there will be no more subsidies by 2026. Given that concession, how did farmers feel about that? They're feeling really angry, to be honest, really, really angry because the subsidy for the fuel, for example, is something that everyone has to pay. When you go to a gas station and fill up your, your tractor or truck or car, you have to pay the normal price on the fuel station. And the farmers get in Germany 21.48 cents per litre back because this is the tax to uh, rebuild and renew 
the streets and the highway. And with this reason, uh, the farmers get it back because they don't use the highway or the streets so much. The tractor normally drives on the field and don't destroy some streets. That's the reason why they found it in the past and how the farmers getting really angry because they quit it. Given the cut in subsidies by the government, what does that mean for consumers buying your agricultural product and also for produce that might be imported to Germany? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question because for me at, at my farm with the vegetables, I can I can po postpone this amount to the customer I have to. But my other colleagues, for example, a typical grain farmer or a cattle farmer, they are delivery or they, they supply some big companies or directly to the to the customer in the supermarket and then they don't have that power to uh, enlarge the prices so easily so uh, they have to pay it by their own so this is some money they're missing in the end of the year given those protests it's not that common in germany and in agriculture that you see that many farmers out on the streets is there no. any memory that you have that protests like these happened no I can, in my mind, we had a few years ago some protests with smaller groups of farmers, but not, not that numbers of farmers or tractors on the street like we have. It's also caused by some other regulations that passed. For example, last year in 2023, we get a new regulation uh, from the government. For example, in this sheet, they write down when we have to plow our soil or when, when we have to seed our soil. And this is something I think that these subsidies now or that this action, what they did now with the subsidies, it was only one thing too much. And now all the farmers are really angry. Given those regulations that you just mentioned in regards to when you can plow your soil and when you can seed, can you explain that a little bit further, what those regulations meant for you as a farmer? For example, my farm is in a really hilly landscape. So we, we're fighting with erosion, mainly of, uh, with water erosion in our fields. And the government now had a new computer system. In this system, every ground, every field is in that system and it's calculated with a big database. This program says, okay, you have to cultivate that soil with, with a disk or blow that field in this direction but the other direction isn't allowed. Or after plowing, you have to seed directly some, some winter wheat or stuff like that, but no plant with a row wide higher than 45 centimeters. Yeah, really weird. Given those protests, what are farmers aiming to achieve? We're aiming to achieve that all the subsidy cutting stops immediately. And yeah, that's the main part. And I think all the other, the other reasons why they're protesting, this is something on the... The level of uh, Europe, we, we can't influence that so much like we want to. Daniel Jung is a vegetable farmer and a board member of the Heilbronn Ludwigsburg District Farmers Association in southern Germany. He was speaking there to Jessica Schremer, and the ABC has contacted the German government for a response. 20 minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. The New South Wales Greens Party has hit out at yesterday's federal court decision in favour of the state-owned Forestry Corporation. The case was brought by local conservationists who, set to, who sought to set aside the decades-old 
Regional Forest Agreement, which regulates logging operations in the forests of northern New South Wales. The agreement was originally established in the year 2000 and extended by the Federal and State Government in 2018 for a further 20 years. Greens MP and Northern Rivers resident Sue Higginson says the agreement completely undermines national environment targets. The judge today, Justice Perry, made very clear in her final and concluding comments that whilst the decision by Scott Morrison and Gladys Berejiklian to re-enter the Regional Forest Agreement that was first entered into 20 years ago, when they re-entered into that agreement in 2018, they did so on a valid basis because there's not much to hold them to account. But she said... The decision to do that is a political decision and that decision is beyond the reach of the court. So essentially, the court's hands are tied. The court can't look at the merit of how we're managing our forests right now or the current condition of our forests or the health of our forests or whether it's the right or wrong thing to do. She made very clear today on behalf of the Federal Court of Australia that is a political matter. So where to from here then? Where to from here is the clear and the obvious. I think the campaign to end the logging of the public native forest estate and protect those forests will escalate now. I think that the focus will be clearly and squarely on the politics as opposed to calling for and seeking justice from the courts. Um, I think that it is clear that the legal and regulatory system is in free fall. Um, And we know that the current New South Wales Environment Minister, Penny Sharp, when she was in opposition and Gladys Berejiklian and Scott Morrison re-entered the Regional Forest Agreement, she said they shouldn't do that without a full and comprehensive assessment of what the impacts on our forests would be if we entered into this agreement. So now we say it is in the hands of the Minsk Labor government and it is incumbent on that government to do as they said should have happened, that we have a full and comprehensive assessment of how we're managing our forests. And we say there should be a moratorium placed on all further destruction of our forests until that assessment's been done. So, so you're calling for political reform here. What, what sort of dialogue have you had with the men's state government about this, about what needs to occur? Have you spoken to, to Minister Sharp, for instance? Absolutely. From the day she was first elected, I wrote to her and we met and we have met consistently. And she knows that we are calling for the end, the inevitable end of logging our public native forest estate to be brought forward. Uh, We look to Victoria, we look to Western Australia. We know this end is inevitable. We know that we need to protect these very important public assets for all of their values um, and we know the future of the timber industries in the plantation estate so we will continue and we will escalate and we will elevate those calls. Greens MP Sue Higginson talking there with uh, Tina Quinn. Now Timber New South Wales President Andrew Herford has welcomed the ruling and says the federal court uh, ruling is a relief for the 7,000 people directly employed by the industry on the north coast. What the legal situation may or may not have been, I probably let others comment on. But I think the um, the fact is that relevant assessments were done, uh, you know, updated assessments were done, and climate change was included in that 
range of assessments in the review. So we're all about a sustainable industry, both for the forests that we operate in and the materials we produce. So, um, you know, I, I think it's time for those who are interested in producing sustainable timber and, and managing our forests sustainably on in the north coast to come together and for ideologues and, and um, people with political agendas to, you know, just step aside and move out of the way. Are you saying that when the RFA was renewed in 2018, there were um, further environmental assessments that were more contemporary? Well, the, the departments did the assessments they thought relevant to comply with the RFA requirements at that time. Now, we had people trying to make a case that they weren't relevant or adequate, and, and that's been clearly shown to be false. In terms of what this means for jobs and the industry, is this a bit of a, a, a boost for the industry? Well, I, I think it is a boost. I mean, I think we've now this is now the second court case that, that NIFA's had overturned in a row. And as I say, I think it's time for people to just come together and think about how we go about managing our forests sustainably on the North Coast. The RFAs, as mentioned in the ruling, was a process set down to set aside what was called a uh, the comprehensive and adequate resource reserve system, which which has been done, and the great majority of forests on the north coast are reserved in either national parks or reserves set aside from harvesting, and there's only a, a relatively small proportion, something like 12% of the forests that are ever harvested, 87.5% of the forests on the north coast permanently result, re, reserved from harvesting. I think we just need to have a bit of balance here. We, we manage those that 12% of the public estate in a sustainable fashion, very careful of the environment and very careful to ensure that we have timber availability into the future. We've been doing it for over 100 years and we can continue doing that for another 100 years. That's Timber New South Wales President Andrew Herford. Now, the ABC has also approached the Premier, Chris Minns, also the Environment Minister, Penny Sharp, and also Forestry New South Forestry Corporation New South Wales for their views on the Federal Court judgment. 27 past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. One of the Riverina's major wineries is changing hands with the sale of Warburn Estate to a family-based business in Griffith. The Taliano family, which is behind the Real Juice Company, will take ownership of the winery's assets, including land, equipment and trademarks, in March. Emily Doak has more. Warburn Estate was established by the Sergi family in 1968 and is one of only a handful of large wineries operating in the Murrumbidgee Irrigation Area. It's been bought by the Taliano family, which has a long history of agriculture with nurseries and fruit trees, and more recently as one of the region's biggest juice processors. Tony Taliano concedes that conditions in the wine industry are tough at the moment, but says he's up to the challenge. The facility as it stands is a fantastic facility, and I still believe that the wine industry as as uh, as low as the the industry is at the moment, I, I still believe that uh, Australian wines uh, are favoured by many consumers. So I think that we can uh, try to shine a light on some of the products that uh, that uh, Metatrina will produce. Yeah, with any luck, we can uh, 
we can expand the existing business. And so do I take it that, that there might be some innovation on the way, some different products, particularly, I suppose, incorporating maybe some of that, that uh, expertise in fruit juice production into wine uh, or vice versa? I think with any business, Emily, we need to always be be looking at uh, new product development and uh, also the opportunities that uh, and trends that are out in the marketplace uh, currently. But um, yeah, we, we we also look at overseas markets for uh, uh, as a guide, and yeah, we have been able to identify some some crossover there. But you're keeping it pretty tight-lipped under your hat at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, it's always, until it comes to fruition, we'll just leave it at that, yes. Now, uh, I'm not sure if this is something that you're able to comment on, but I have heard that some growers are still waiting on payment for delivery of grapes for previous vintages. Uh, Are they going to receive money for that fruit? They are indeed, yes. I've I've had confirmation uh, from the uh, the, uh, Warburton Estates uh, company that uh, those those growers will be definitely paid. Are you able to give any indication of how much in the dollar they're likely to receive? No, unfortunately, that's uh, that's something that you would have to refer back to them. And so, is that seen as being important in cementing your future relationship with potential suppliers? Yes, of course. Look, we 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 can't make wine without the, the help of growers, just like we can't make orange juice without the uh, the, the input from our growers. So, uh, the growers uh, are definitely one of the most important rungs in the uh, in the whole process. So, yes, no, we we definitely asked that uh, growers uh, be considered for payment as promptly as possible to help uh, the 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 changeover and the uh, this year's vintage. President of the Riverina Winemakers Association, Andrew Calabria, says the sale of the winery is a positive development. The change of hands is, is probably a good thing. I mean, we've seen lots of other wineries doing it tough across the country, and we've just seen wineries just close and not, not even be sold. They've just been sort of mothballed. And so the fact that there's a, actually um, a new, quite energetic family coming through, it's, it's probably quite encouraging, opposed to someone just shutting the doors like we're seeing uh, with some of the wineries in other regions. And how significant is it to, I suppose, retain a base of, of different winemaking interests in the region like this? It is crucial. I mean, we have a grower base of over 300 different growers in the region. Um, but unfortunately, over the years, we've seen uh, the winery, the number of wineries uh, has really decreased. Um, what we have seen is we've had all the big companies here in Grahurst, such as Pernod Ricard. We've had Treasury Wine Estates. Um, but they're all gone. And so what is left is a very, a very strong family backbone. And I think that is really, that's what's really the, the main thing for the Griffith region. Um, but, you know, we, we, we want to see more wineries, not less. Um, our growers need that. Uh, if they've got nowhere to place their fruit, then, then obviously that's their, their livelihoods change as well. So I think the fact that it's um, the doors are staying open at the Warburn Estate is actually, it, it's good for, you know, retaining our growers. President of the Riverina Winemakers Association, Andrew Calabria. And uh, there's uh, an interesting story online, so check it out on abc.net.au about uh, that sale of that uh, major winery, Warburn Estate.
It's uh, up on the website right now. It's 27 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour, and shortly we'll have some weather details. But before we do that, let's get some news headlines from Adam Story. Good afternoon. Afternoon. Uh, there's calls for an urgent audit to work out uh, which e-bikes and batteries are causing fires around Australia. Uh, I would say most of them. <laughs> uh, this... Well, isn't there a problem when people put too a bigger battery in them or the wrong battery in them, and then they and and they because they want a longer time and they and they oh, I see, it's up, over, see, it's overheating the yeah, uh, yeah overheats, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. this call has come from the uh, Council of Recycling, and they're saying the batteries are like little bombs, and they're causing about three fires a day in uh, waste and recycling facilities. Oh. I just think e-bikes should be banned full stop. I mean, they're just laying about everywhere. You're either going to be hit by one of them or tripped over, trip over one. Uh, anyway. Uh, okay. Bicycle New South Wales says imports of cheap, unregulated e-bikes must be banned. There's my well, man. That's, well, that's, 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 that's probably why. And he might, says regulators should act immediately to not, identify not, uh, all problematic to the, devices. Maybe not up to the safety standards, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the uh, shooting yesterday on Nara police have identified the man who was shot dead by police, Alexander Pinnock. Uh, he was known to police, uh, known to have suffered a number of um, mental uh, health issues. Investigations are still underway surrounding the uh, shooting and witnesses are being urged to come forward uh, to try to help piece together the events uh, that took place. Uh, New South Wales police are saying there's a conflict between an organised crime gang and a controversial rap group called One Four, and they say it was likely the, likely the motive behind an alleged plot to kill four of its members. So it's like hip-hop wars have oh. uh, come to Sydney. Like Tupac. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who killed him? <laughs> There's a documentary out. I know, who yeah. killed Tupac, yeah. yeah. Right. Mm. Uh, police allege two men aged 26 and 20 were contracted to murder the band members by other criminal gangs. 28 others were charged with organised crime offences as part of an international syndicate which is believed to be uh, coordinated from uh, Lebanon. Right. Interesting times. Mm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, Chris Christie's pulled out of the uh, US presidential race uh, for the time being. They're saying he suspended the campaign. Uh, this is ahead of the Iowa caucus. Uh, this is, he said he wants to uh, allow uh, concentration on the uh, other top-tier candidates, apart from Donald Trump, which would be Nikki Haley and uh, Ron DeSantis. And they're in a debate. Later on today, today actually, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah uh, that's right. Yeah. That's probably, just the two probably of them. as we speak. Just yes, it's just the two yeah. of them, just mm. the just the two front runners. Mm. Yeah. They are gaining on him in New Hampshire. Yeah, look, uh, Hampshire. it could throw up an interesting mm. an interesting that's result. The, saying, they're saying yeah. the weather could play a part. Mm. There's uh, mm. a big freeze on the way there. Mm. But he has has been leading by forty points up until now. Something so, like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's down quite a bit in New Hampshire. I know. Interesting, as you say. No, no, no. And it is a caucus as. Well, it's not a. Uh, it's not a. Full That's on, right. Full on exactly. primary. So, yeah. It's, yeah. although, although uh, in yeah. some of the caucuses, independents or non-Republicans are allowed to vote as well. Oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah so. that does make a, the yeah. decision quite interesting. All right, thanks for that. We'll okay. be listening at one o'clock. It's uh, twenty-five minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Let's uh, find out what's happening with the weather. Stephen Stefanak at the bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So, uh, still some showers around, and but uh, more on the way. Another sort of system on the way, is that right? Yes, that's right. So, the main system at the moment is a low-pressure trough over the interior of New South Wales, and there's plenty of uh, moisture and humidity around, and that's feeding into the showers and storms that we've been seeing over previous days. 
they'll just continue over the next few days. So again, this afternoon, particularly over the northern inland this afternoon, we'll see some showers and storms. And uh, that shower and storm activity mostly shift to the west on Friday and also to the southeastern inland. And then the trough over uh, the trough over the inland on Saturday links with our front over the Southern Ocean. So we see a little bit of momentum with that and those showers and storms. They just continue across the west and south on Saturday as well. And um, yeah, so rainfall totals with these showers and storms will be quite varied and, uh, and localised depending whether you're under a storm or not. Um, but uh, that's, that's it. So a lot of places too uh, will probably miss out on get, getting, getting anything. So we're not necessarily going to see a, a big dump of rain or uh, you know um, big totals coming out of this system coming through? It's, uh, it's going to be depending. So we're not expecting massive totals with, with the storms, but isolated storms have the capacity of producing rainfall up to 50 millimetres and uh, but many other places around might see very little from 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 storms or just get the edge of a storm or miss out completely. So um, totals quite varied. But we're not going to get the I guess the main thing is we're not going to get the widespread rainfall, uh, the widespread. So I'm not expecting a widespread rainfall event, just a shower and a storm event, which will be quite localised and hit and miss in nature. Right, and localised to where, like the northeast, uh, maybe on the uh, mid-north coast, north coast? Yeah, so mostly across the northern inland today and then across the west and south on Friday and Saturday. A chance of a storm on the, along the northern coast on, on Saturday and uh, uh, there as well. So we could see a couple of storms up there on Saturday. Otherwise, we might see an odd shower too along the northern coast over the coming days. And is it uh, what's happening after that? Are we like, going to see some fine weather then? At this stage, unsettled conditions are continuing right through to next week and right through to the end of next week. Showers and storms won't completely clear from the state. We'll have these warm to very warm humid temp, um, humid conditions that we're experiencing at least right through to the weekend. A little bit of milder relief along the coast from Sunday onwards with a bit of onshore winds there. But the showers and storms never really clear. And, um, and also... Uh, Along the coast, we expect the odd shower to continue right through to next week. Okay, so yeah, so uh, no reprieve, so cloudy and showers and thunderstorms uh, is a feature for quite some time then? Yes, that's right. So quite a good mix of cloud and, and sun across the state and um, unsettled conditions with sh- uh, showers and storms affecting parts of the state as well. Okay, well, uh, yes, well, I guess we'll have to get used to it. Okay, thanks for that, Stephen. You're welcome. It's 21 minutes to one here on The Country Hour. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. More than $105 million has been spent at the Magic Millions Gold Coast yearling sale with day three now underway. More than a dozen horses have now passed the million-dollar mark. Three-quarters of those offered from Hunter Valley Studs. The Wooten Bassett filly out of advantage from Coolmore was the first horse of the sale to crack $2 million, selling to Tiako. Tiako Racing's David Ellis. It's uh, been a great time for Upper Hunter Studs, including Yarraman Park. Manager Arthur Mitchell told Amelia Bernasconi that they've had a pretty good start to the sale. He was our best colt. He happened to come up in the sale very early, so we had a good, very good colt and a very good filly up early, and they both sold well. They were both really nice horses, so um, all the big buyers are here. It's been a good start to the sale. 
Were you nervous having those two two lots with, with quite a lot of eyes on them, but so early on when this, the catalogue is, I think it's its biggest ever this year? Yes, it's a big catalogue. We, 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 we were nervous, but they were very... They, they were very nice horses, so they were sort of two of our very best at the sale. So we were pretty happy to get them done and away. So, um, but yeah, no, we were a little bit nervous, but what it's the way it draws, it's alphabetical, so that's what happens. Tell me a bit more about, um, you know, that, that Colton filly that sold yesterday, um, particularly the, the filly. I think there was a lot of interest there too, wasn't well, there, that Outback Barbie? Well, the filly was a, 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 a very emotional story because Outback Barbie was a very good racehorse and raced by um, uh, the Acton family here in Queensland, big cattle family, and he got killed in his helicopter last year. So emotionally for the family, they um, they sold the filly. I think they retained a bit, but it was a an emotional roller coaster seeing that, um, you know, um, Mr Acton had died. It does become quite an emotional time there, and, and you know those stories, I suppose, are um, you know even more heightened. But when you're putting so much work into these animals, and I suppose I'm invincible always draws such a huge crowd, and he stands with you um, back home. And uh, that colt you sold yesterday was by him. So, yeah, the I'm invincible lines—they continuing that uh, interest. Oh my gosh, there's a lot more to sell here. Yes, he's got a long way to go. Not not just from us, from a lot of different people. There's some nice horses here. So, you know, he's sort of the the dominant sire at the moment. So I don't know mm-hmm. how long it will last, but it's lasting at the moment. It seems like so, it's lasted a long time so far. We'll, well see. Well, it does. Often. <laughs> he is 19 now. He's 20 this year. So, yes, he's um he is getting on a bit. Goodness me. And I'm sure you've got lots more uh, to sell over the next few days. Are you in the buying market as well? Is there any that you've got uh, your eye on? We haven't, no, nothing really. We're mainly selling here. We're too sort of busy to try to buy because we're, we're too busy trying to get them all sold. We've got 36 mm. yearlings here, so we're just bigger than what we normally have, so we're actually quite busy. You know, it's, um, you can't take your eye off the ball. As Yarraman Park manager Arthur Mitchell talking to there to Amelia Bernasconi. G'day, I'm Nick Grimm. Join me for The World Today. What are the factors driving the big surge in home prices in Brisbane? As new data suggests, that city is now more expensive to buy in than Melbourne. Troops called in to quell major rioting and unrest in Papua New Guinea's capital, Port Moresby, and are clouds gathering over proposals for offshore wind farms, with one major renewable energy project running foul of environmental law. Those stories and more coming up on The World Today. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. And on the country, our Brewarrina Shire Council is seeking funding for a processing plant for the invasive carp species. Councillor Donna Jeffries put forward a proposal for a facility that could turn the carp into organic fertiliser and pet food. Ondine Slacksmith asked her why it's needed. Well, I guess the driver for the for the motion has been, you know, the overwhelming population of European carp that are in our freshwater um, systems. So if you have a look at some of the research, it's indicative that there's about 90% of the fish biomass are actually the pests, of, like the rabbits of the river, European carp. Whereabouts would it be located on the Barwon Darling River system? Would its location impact its effectiveness, do you think? Um, I, I really 
would like to um, think that anywhere along the Bow and Darling River system would be an ideal um, situation. However, we we have some great opportunities at Bruwarana, um, and the, we have the the fish traps which are there. And at the minute, they're currently absolutely chock a block full of European carp. So that that's a a bit of a start for the business that doesn't even require you know, any sort of um, further um, ingenuity. That that piece of ingenuity has been there for thousands of years and has been used and still is used today. Um, so I'd really like to see this um, this plant, if it does get legs, to be established in Brewarna. I know we have support from our, um, our neighbours in Burkhouse and Tilpa. I've actually had discussions with... Um, people from each of those communities and they're very supportive of this process. And now the process of actually collecting fish and turning them into fertiliser and pet food. It's quite a unique idea. Can I ask, where did this idea come from? Myself and my husband went fishing in um, late September last year. Uh, we have a really big weir pool at Brewina. It's approximately 70 kilometres long, um, averaging four to six metres deep for that, that whole area. We were in the boat and we could feel the carp hitting the boat underneath us. So, you know, something just needs to be done. It's it's not sustainable to keep that number of carp in the river and still expect to have a native um, fish species. If you were to be making this liquid fertiliser, what kinds of things would you propose the fertiliser would be being used for? Uh, the the fertiliser... It's really beneficial to people with agriculture, like whether they're grain growers around the region, cotton growers, people growing um, vegetable gardens or their lawns. You know, there's a whole range of things that the the business down in Denelico, New South Wales, the Charlie Carp people, they they use their um, their fertiliser commercially. They actually have it on the shelves at, at Bunnings, so they sell quite a lot of it. Talking about the issue of uh, carp there, Brewana, Brewarana Shire Council, Donna Jeffries, uh, speaking to Ondine Slacksmith about the proposal for a carp processing plant in the Barwon Darling River system. You're listening to the Country Hour. It's coming up to uh, 14 minutes to one and uh, still on uh, fish issues. Confirmation is expected today that a virus which uh, kills vast amounts of fish could be spreading to the Central West. The Department of Primary Industries Fishery is investigating those uh, four kills of the red fin pest species at Lake Wallace at Lake Wallace near uh, Wallerawang uh, on in and also the Oberon Dam and near Orange and the DPI says that it's highly likely now that the EHN virus which we've been talking about on the program last week it's highly likely that uh, that virus is behind the deaths there are concerns that the virus could kill off an endangered fish population near Bathurst as well so if we get any more details on that we'll bring you as soon as we bring them bring them to you as soon as we can it's 12 minutes to one you're listening to the country hour on abc radio new south wales 
Well, WA farmers, they're putting forward a solution to the long-running industrial unrest at the port, saying that we should fully automate ports right across the country. It's in response to the ongoing dispute between Australia's largest port operator, DP World, and its workers over pay and conditions. DP World has threatened to dock the pay of those who participate in further industrial action this week. Trevor Whittington is the CEO of lobby group WA Farmers. He says a current dispute will be resolved the same way every other port dispute is resolved in Australia, and uh, that should change. A deal being done which will cost farmers and consumers even more. Um, you know, they will get paid more for working less. That's the, That seems to be the formula after you know, extended strikes. So, you know, it's certainly not the first time there's been a dispute at the ports. What's the long-term solution here, Trevor? Look, the long-term solution, and look, (laughs) 25 years ago, there was the Chris Corrigan um, exercise to make the ports more efficient, and they got a little bit more efficient for a while, and then they've slipped backwards. There was a push for the Productivity Commission under Morrison to make the ports more efficient, and they've slipped backwards. Ultimately, the solution is to automate the ports like they've done in, you know, 30 or 40 ports around the world. Get the wharfies out of it because we're just lifting boxes off boats and stacking them on the wharf and just, you know, go fully automated, fully robotic. And that's, you know, we've got the technology to do it. We just need to get there fast. And how efficient do those 40-odd ports, automated ports around the world work? They're, they're, the China's building them at the rate of knots. Um, you know, they, our, the new outer harbour port, if it ever gets built, uh, would be perfect for it. It would be at least double the efficiency, you know, 60, 70, 80 containers an hour, you know, fully controlled by, you know, computers and, and uh, robotics and uh, the cranes work with all the, the technology that we use to run harvesters up and down rows within, you know, a centimetre. There's nothing difficult about this at all, but um, it would at least take this endless round of port disputes that Australia seems to suffer from and bring it to an end. Wouldn't it cost an extraordinary amount of money, though, to automate a port? No, farmers can afford to put uh, self-steering on their headers no, it's not expensive at all. Um, it's certainly a lot cheaper than paying a wharfies not to front up to rosters, which is currently what's happening. Well, I mean, you know, we're talking about taking away jobs here. I mean, surely, you know, people can keep their jobs on the wharf. Uh, the wharf can continue to work. And there must be a solution here. We can come together and actually it, it resolve be, a dispute. Would be, it would be cheaper to pay these people to, to just stay at home and not come to work and we go robotics because the delays in the supply chain of getting you know we need fertilizer and chemicals and parts to come through in the ports for seeding we need to get out our chilled beef and um and and our our wine and fresh produce plus everything else we export that goes on containers and we're losing jobs and australia's credibility as a manufacturing you know exporting nation uh, to keep some very, very highly paid individuals in jobs. And there's no lack of jobs out there in the mining and agricultural sector at the moment. So we can find jobs for these people, but they can't continue to hold Australia and you know, the farmers and the consumers to ransom. So eventually, governments need to muscle up. Now, Albanese shows no interest. And ultimately, the solution is state governments building ports that we don't need union, union wharfies you know, 
doing this endless rounds of going on strike every couple of years to extract more for doing less. Don't they have the right, though, to argue for, uh, you know, the pay and conditions they yeah, deserve? Knock themselves out. Go, go, for, go for their life. Um, it's a free country. You can be unionised. At the same time, the rest of the community can say enough is enough. We don't want to be held to ransom anymore, so there must be another solution. And there is one in terms of technology. So let's fast track towards that. And these the, the governments and the state government controls the Fremantle Port, owns it. It should be stepping up. We should be hearing from the, this, uh, the, from the Premier where we're at with the port. Uh, if they're not going to build the outer harbour, why won't they just automate what we've got now so that we're not caught up in, in, in what is a predictable cycle of every two or three years we go through another end round of disputes. Trevor Whittington is the CEO of Lobby Group WA Farmers talking there with Melinda Varaschetti. It's coming up to seven minutes to one on the country hour. Well, qualifications in metal fabrication, driving livestock trucks and being president of the Young Show Society is a pretty impressive resume for 24-year-old Emma Goodsell. She's been named as a finalist in the Royal Agricultural Society of New South Wales Young Achiever Program, recognising her work to promote agriculture. Reporter Emily Doak found Emma in the work Workshop to find out how she became interested in metalwork. My dad used to work away. Uh, he was an explorational driller and he used to work on the farm before that. And I'd always loved watching him weld. I just thought the sparks, the heat, the light, like I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And he was working away and obviously he wasn't there to teach me how to do it. And I went, oh, I'll try it at school and took, took it as an elective and I was the only girl in the class and I was just so, so nervous. <laughs> um, so I gave it three or four lessons and went, this is really cool. And then, yeah, at the end of year 11, got myself an apprenticeship because mum said if you want to leave school, full-time driver and apprenticeship is the only way you're allowed to leave. And I was like, challenge accepted. And that was, yeah, the beginning of it, really. I left school at the end of year 11 and haven't looked back in any way. And what do you like most about working with metal and welding and that sort of thing? Probably the fact that I can take a flat sheet of metal and turn it into something. Like I could take, take that lug just there and I could make something out of it that isn't that. Like it's just seeing it go from nothing to something that can be used, I think it's pretty cool. But you have had a career pivot and you're now driving livestock trucks. How did that come about? I was ready to do something else. Like I will never say I know everything as far as the trade is concerned. I still learn um, at the moment even, but I was just ready for a new challenge. And some weeks I'm in the truck for 40 hours, some weeks I'm in it for 80 hours. It just depends. We do a lot of local work, so it depends what we've got going on. We can take our crates off our trucks. So we 80% of our work is livestock, pigs, sheep and cattle. Um, and we also cart wool, hay, machinery, bagged fertiliser. I'd imagine that your other trade, that metal fabrication work, could come pretty handy when you're talking about dealing with some big rigs like this. Yeah, well, like I said, we get some uh, pretty wild animals and this crate here, especially, it's 15 years old. So it's, it stands up to a lot of the animals quite well, but every now and then something bends or something breaks. Um, the roads are a bit rough at the moment, like they are everywhere because of all the rain we've had. So, yeah, I can spend a couple of days in the shed every now and then just going through and fixing all the cracks, straightening everything that's been bent, just giving them all a, a bit of a look over. 
Your other uh, big thing in your life is contribution to the agricultural societies and you're actually president of the Young Show Society. What sort of a value do you think that a show like that brings to a community in regional Australia? There's so many different uh, aspects that go into a show. Like we have the ladies at home who sew, we have, we have trucks, we have cars, we have flowers, cooking, cattle, sheep. It brings so many different people together and getting the sense of community back. Emma Goodsell is uh, from Young in New South Wales. She's a finalist in the Royal Agricultural Society of New South Wales Young Achievers. Time for markets. Let's go to Wagga Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. There was a significant upswing in lamb and sheep numbers, totalling 52,000 lambs and 15,000 sheep, fuelled by a price surge of the previous sale. Vendors were well rewarded as prices saw an increase ranging from $7 to $11. The recent rainfall did serve as motivation for restockers and feedlots, resulting in a substantial rise in rates for store lambs of $10 to $15 for the better types. Heavy lambs experienced robust demand, drawing a considerable number of buyers and driving up by $10 peaking at 2.94 and averaging 760 cents. Trade lambs displayed varying price trends at times but generally held firm with most averaging around 800 cents. Lambs weighing 21 to 24 sold from 160 to 194. Store lambs showing weight and frame commanded prices ranging from 128 to 162. Merino lambs fetched prices ranging from 58 to 178. Hoggets met strong demand with merino portions selling at 108 to 1 46 and crossbreds were sold within a range of 126 to 164. With the sheep yet to be sold, there's a two-hour break. I'm Leanne Dax for MLA. Let's go to Dubbo Cattle now. The first cattle sale for Dubbo for the year produced a yarding of 1989. It was a mixed quality yarding with a good selection of prime cattle in all sections, along with fair numbers to suit the feeders. There were also good numbers of secondary boss indicus cattle mixed throughout. Young cattle of the trade were 20 cents dearer and more in places, with prime vealers selling to 3.15. Prime yearlings sold from 2.50 to 3.34. Feeder steers were 35 cents dearer, while the feeder heifers were 20 to 30 cents dearer. Feeder steers sold from 2.88 to 3.44, while feeder heifers sold from 2.14 to 3.15. The few young cattle of the restockers were also considerably dearer, with the young steers selling to 3.58 and the young heifers 2.90. Ground steers and heifers were considerably dearer, with the prime ground steers selling from 265 to 289. The prime ground heifers sold from 249 to 280. Cows were up to 40 cents dearer, with the two and three scores selling from 150 to 229. Prime heavyweight cows sold from 213 to 262 to average 240. Heavy bulls sold to 220. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. Let's go to Yas Cattle now. Good afternoon. The first sale of 24 offered 464 head and started strong, lifting 50 to 80 cents across most cattle. The quality was very good, with yearlings best supplied, and there was a very good run of prime heavy cows. Not all the usual buyers were operating. The few weaner steers to restock us, 338 to 355. The heifer portion, 265 to 290. Feeder steers, medium weight, 270 to 337. Heavyweights 278 to 311. The medium weight feeder heifers 255 to 285. Heavyweights reached 274. Heavy trade cattle 272 to 285. Growing steers and bullocks 259 to 290. And heavy heifers made to 264. The heavy cows range between 228 and 258. And the best of the B muscle bulls 255. And this has been Graham Richard. 
And that's the market information for today and the program for today. Let's uh, go to the news at one o'clock.